Bible is such a wonderful book. It can be studied in so many different ways. You can look at some of the great themes, some of the great doctrines that are revealed in the Bible, and you can study them individually. You can take one passage of Scripture, and you can take that passage of Scripture and from it derive a number of great lessons, not only that applied to those of the first century, but for us as well. We also can study the Bible as a book. We can take a book of that book of books, and that is what we're going to do over the next several weeks as we study the book of Colossians. I will point out to you that each book of the Bible is unique. And when you think about Paul's prison letters, those letters are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those that he wrote from that Roman prison, each of them has some unique character to it as well. For instance, the book of Ephesians, written to the church at Ephesus. Paul had his longest tenure there. He preached the gospel to them almost three years before he moved on to do other works. You can think about the congregation that was at Philippi. That was Paul's sponsoring church. He had a relationship with them that was more endearing, closer than perhaps any other congregation with whom he worked. And then we come to the letter to the Colossians. He never met them. Never had that personal contact. But yet this book illustrates a point that I think we all need to appreciate. That is, is that we must love the brotherhood. Not only those congregations with which we have had close personal contact. Not only those that we might have some sort of working relationship with. But we must love our brethren that are around the world. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, he says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We have to be the kind of people who love the Lord's church everywhere we go. And we must be concerned about the Lord's church. The key verse for our study of the book of Colossians is going to come from chapter 1. And verse 27, and there Paul says, To them God will to make known what are the riches of his glory, or the glory of this mystery, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I titled this series of lessons, Christ in the Colossians. And when you think about that, that is exactly what Paul is trying to get them to understand is that Christ is in you. If we appreciate God's Word as we should, we ought to be praying for, we ought to be striving for Christ in the church at Bobby Branch. You know, when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, he said to them in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul said, Christ lives in me. In the book of John, as Jesus was preparing to bring about the uh, end of his earthly walk, he said to his apostles in chapter 14 and verse 20, And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is not some sort of mystical, uh, touchy-feely thing. This is where the Lord actually takes us and uses us as an instrument of his good. That is where people can look at me, they can look at you and say, I can see the Lord in them. How they conduct themselves. In chapter 17, in verse 23, he said, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved me, or loved them as you have loved me. We ought to be the kind of people that recognize God loves us, wants to be in us, wants to direct our lives. As we prepare to study the book of Colossians, this is an introductory lesson. It is going to attempt to try to help us understand this wonderful book as we approach it. We're going to talk about the city of Colossae. Can't say a whole lot because there's not a lot known. Then we want to talk about the church to understand a little bit about the congregation. And then, importantly, to understand the circumstances as to why Paul wrote this letter to them. And then finally, to look at the commencement of the letter at the beginning in verses 1 through 8. So if you will, I am short on time this morning, so we're going to go quickly as we go through this first section here. Location is very important. It was 100 miles east of the city of Ephesus in the beautiful Lycus River Valley, beautiful fertile valley. It was in the area of the Tri-Cities, the cities of Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. They were all three destroyed by an earthquake that occurred somewhere between AD 60 and AD 64. For instance, in Colossians 2 and verse 1, Paul says, For I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. When you come to chapter 4 and look at verse 13, he talks about the churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. The reason why he mentions them together is because they're all within a short distance of one another. The city of Hierapolis was a city of hot springs. Uh, I have been to Hot Springs, Arkansas a number of times, and it's well known for its healing properties in the hot water that is there. Such was the case at Heropolis, hot springs there. People would go there for rest, relaxation, for their health. The city that was in between Colossae and Heropolis was Laodicea, and it was known for its wealth, the money that it had, it's commerce and politics. And then the city of Colossae, a small declining city. You say, what do you mean small declining? The city had once been a great area. However, by the time Paul writes this letter, the city I could compare perhaps much like to Detroit, Michigan. 
once a very thriving, bustling area, but due to the economy and people moving away, the city began to decline. Not as many residents there, not the influence that it once had. Historically, the people are Phrygian. And you say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, Xenophon, who was a historian, described it as the dominant city in 400 B.C. With the expansion of Rome, though, it became a melting pot, a place where people from all sorts came. And there was a population shift from Colossae to Laodicea and Hierapolis. You may not know, but when Warren County was established, the county was centralized around old Philadelphia. However, as the county began to, the population began to swell and people began to move, people moved to Viola, people moved to Morrison, people moved to McMinnville. And were it not for the heroic efforts of some of our brethren, the church building that existed old Philadelphia might would have fallen into such disrepair that it would have been uh, destroyed by now. But it was saved. We don't sometimes recognize the importance of things. And such was the case at Colossae. But one of the most important things about the historical background is the fact that Cicero, who was a Roman historian, pointed out that there were about 10,000 Jews who were settled in these tri-city areas. The coinage showed that they worshipped Artemis or Diana, Zeus, and even some of the Egyptian deities. I want to show you a photo or two. This is a satellite photo. You see that little purple, or not purple, blue dot in the middle. That is the actual area of Colossae. You say, well, it looks like a field to me. It is in an area, you can look at that, and I know it's difficult for some of you to see, but those three yellow boxes represent in the north at the top is where is Hierapolis. The one at your left, that yellow box, is where Laodicea is at, and down at the bottom is Colossae. And there's about 11 miles from Colossae to Hierapolis, uh, and then about 10 miles from Colossae to Laodicea, and about 8 miles from Laodicea to Hierapolis in a triangle shape. That's what it looks like today. You can say, well, I don't see anything there but a little hillside. That's what you see if you go. If you go there, there's the theater. And I know you may think there's, that doesn't look like anything. Here's what it looks like in wintertime. If you're out in the field right in front of it, you can see a column there and you can see people on the top. But it has not yet been excavated. But that's the area of Colossae. And there is the coal stream that runs by it that comes from the mountain right next to it where there's snow cover on it most of the year. To give you a little bit of background about the church, I think it's important to start at the beginning. Go back to the day of Pentecost. When Luke writes Theophilus and he is beginning to tell the events that occurred on the day of Pentecost, you can go to Acts chapter 2 and he describes beginning with verse 8 the people saying, and how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? And then Luke begins to record several places from which these people had come. And if you will notice in verse 10, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. When the brethren at Colossae formed a congregation, 
certainly they must have been some people who are in that area who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Did they go back and form a congregation there? I don't necessarily think the text indicates they did. Maybe they went somewhere else. I think the indication, though, is they were both Jews and proselytes. Paul himself would have gone through this area. When you go to Acts 18 and then the first part of chapter 19, Paul's on his missionary journey while he's at Ephesus. And Acts 18 verse 23 says, And he had spent some time there. He departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening the disciples. Again, I mentioned that it may not have been in Colossae, but he went through this area and also he passed through these upper regions in Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. But we learn from chapter 2 verse 1 that the church had not seen Paul in the flesh. So that would mean that he was not the one who established the congregation. He said in the latter part of verse 1, For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh... Can you imagine, here's Paul writing a letter to a church that had never seen him. Well, then from whom did they learn it? Epaphras was the one who evidently established the church. If you go to chapter 1, and verses 7 and 8, and part of our text for this morning, as you have learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who has declared to us your love in the Spirit, Notice, they learn from him. Chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you. So he is a part of that group of people there, and he had taught them. From where did Epaphras learn it? We don't know. Maybe he had learned it from Paul. Maybe he was one of those who had gone on the day of Pentecost. But these brethren here at at Colossae had learned from him. What we do know about the church is they had some common issues with Laodicea. And that's one of the things that I think can be helpful to us in understanding this letter. And when we read the book, for instance, of Revelation chapter 3, and we read about the church at Laodicea and the difficulties they had, then we can appreciate this congregation. In chapter 4, verse 16, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. You say, well, where is the book of Laodiceans? I don't know. Perhaps there are other books of the Bible that God did not see fit to have preserved. But we do know that these churches were so close together not only in proximity but also perhaps in their nature that there was letters that were sent to each of them and they were to read each other's letters. Which brings me to the important part of our lesson, that is the circumstances. Why would Paul write a letter to this congregation? Why would you write a letter to someone else? Generally, there has to be a set of circumstances in your mind that would bring about a need to write. You may, for instance, want to tell someone how much you appreciate them. You may want to address a problem 
that has arisen. Paul has a reason for writing this letter. Let me tell you, there's two things that are a part of this. Number one, when Paul writes this letter, he is sending it by the hand of Onesimus so that they can know how things are going with Paul. Paul's in prison. How is Paul doing? What kind of things are happening to him? Is he about ready to give up? Is he struggling? Is he going through a difficult time? When I go to chapter 4, verse 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. There's going to be a, a delivery of a message. Here's how things are going with Paul. But I want you to notice, Epaphras is with Paul, and he's told Paul the things that are going on in Colossae. You see, there's this man who's come here, and he says, now here's what's happening here. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervent for, fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Reading this tells you that he's with Paul because he sends greetings to them. What has he told Paul about them? Well, number one, there's a problem with this Jewish influence. I mentioned to you that earlier Cicero noted that there have been 10,000 Jews who settled this area. That's a large number of people. That's a lot of influence there. What kind of problem could that cause within a congregation of people who some of them would have been Gentiles and some of them would have been Jews? Well, I know what it can cause in Acts chapter 19. There were some people who were saying, unless you keep the law of Moses, unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. That's Acts chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. There are people here who are teaching similar things. In chapter 2, verse 11, Paul has said, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. They were thinking of the physical circumcision. And Paul said, No, that's not what I'm talking about. Drop down to verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You see, these people were elevating feast days, Sabbath days. And he says, don't let anybody judge you because of that. The church was having a Jewish influence and people were trying to get them to go back to that Old Testament law. A second influence, a second problem that arisen was some mysticism. And that's really a problem sometimes. Because these people had gotten to the point where they were thinking about worshiping angels. Not worshiping God, worshiping angels. Listen to chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. Someone says, what do you mean by worshiping angels? Well, you think about the way some people think today. Think about what's going on in some people's minds. They believe there's a guardian angel who's following every one of us and say, okay, I've got to make sure this car wreck doesn't happen. I've got to preserve his life. 
I've got to make sure this happens. The Bible does not teach guardian angels. And yet some people have got this mysticism thing going on. That was a problem there in Colossae. There's other people who have an ascetic element. And what asceticism means is that a person denies himself any joy, any happiness, to try to mean that he's more spiritual. And some people think that if you don't do this and you don't do that, that that's going to make you a holier person. Listen to Paul in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Therefore, if you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why do you, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? And here's the ones he's going to quote. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the doctrines and the commandments of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion and false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Notice that last two lines there. They're of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. There are some people who will come along and give you another set of rules, another set of regulations. They will bind things that God hasn't bound. And the church at Colossae was having to struggle with a Jewish element, a mystic element, and then over here an ascetic element, and they were all trying to get people to go in a different direction. Division was bound to happen because of it. But then there is a fourth issue, and that is a devaluation of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. One of the main points that is taught in the Bible is that Jesus Christ was fully God and that he was fully man. In fact, there's so many places, particularly the book of 1 John, that talks about people who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. John chapter 1 says that he took upon flesh. And when you get to Colossians 2 and verse 9, he puts it very simply. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, that is a form of that's, that he's arguing against called Gnosticism. And I'll have to talk about that later. You have to recognize this book has both a practical aspect, chapters 1 and 2, are, is doctrinal, chapters 3 and 4 are practical. And then the commencement. I'm going to go through very quickly through this last section, the first eight verses. If you'll open your Bible there, we're going to just mention these and then we'll draw our lesson to a close. He begins with his authority and his authorship. He is Paul, an apostle by the will of God. He didn't take this upon himself with Timothy. The recipients he calls them saints and faithful brethren. Now it's one thing to be a brother, but it's more important to be a faithful brother that is found in verse 2. What is the condition of the congregation? He talks about their faith in Christ in verse 4, their love for all the saints, 
also in verse 4. And their hope that is laid up for them in heaven, in verse 5. What do you see in those verses? Faith, hope, and love. Just like Romans chapter 5 talks about those things. In the latter part of verse 4, he talks about hope. Verse 5, he talks about love. And uh, back in verse 2, he talked about faith. You think about 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now abides these three. Faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8, all emphasize faith, hope, and love. What a solid congregation they would have been. You look at the effect of the gospel. It was the word of the truth of the gospel which they had heard, which had gone into all the world. It was the same message. The whole world got the same message. Why is that true? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul said in the latter part of that verse, as I teach everywhere in every church. You don't have one gospel for the Jew, another gospel for the Gentile, one gospel for Judaism, one gospel for Gentiles. No, it's all the same gospel. It brought forth the same fruit. And then their evangelist, Epaphras, was a dear fellow servant and a faithful minister on your behalf. In other words, they're ser he's serving on their behalf. I think there's a lot to learn from the struggles of congregations and the challenges they face because history repeats itself. You and I are living in a congregation and we're trying our very best to serve God. But we're going to have problems that arise. And when they do, we need to know how to deal with them. And a study of these churches shows us here's the kind of problems that can arise and here's how you address those problems. One of the problems they had was failing to keep their focus on Jesus and who he was. And we can have that same gospel message preached today that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if you want to be obedient to that gospel, you can. We have people here this morning who are not yet Christians. You need to make a choice now. You need to make a choice. I am going to serve God. I am going to be a Christian. When we sing this invitation song, if you'll come forward, repenting of your sins, confess your faith, and be baptized, the Lord will forgive you of the sins. Acts 2 verse 38. He'll add you to His church Acts chapter 2, verse 47. If you're one of God's children and you need to come home, would you come as together we stand and sing?